Okay, hello, welcome back to the Aristocrats. Welcome back. Uh, sorry, we haven't been posting in a while. We've been busy. busy. Yeah, yeah, as usual, like busy. But, but anyway, we promise we'll get a lot done well, over we the do. next few days. Hopefully, we will. Hopefully, so a lot more episodes coming up soon. Yeah. Uh, cool. So today we're going to be covering. I think. Well, we'll see how it goes, but probably just part one of the existence of God based on observation. Oh yeah, um, and. This is obviously quite a big deal, especially, well, for me as a Christian, I want to be able to say that I can have good proof of God's existence. But is that by observation or is yeah, it by exactly. reason? Or yeah. um, how, how do you say that? And so for a very long time, people have been like, okay, so we need, we believe in this big, big God thing, but why? And some people weren't just satisfied with, oh, well, my mum did or, or my dad did or every person that I know in my entire life did. Um, they want an actual reason why. And then so especially look- after the Enlightenment, people got a lot more concerned with proving that God did exist because suddenly there were people saying, we don't want God anymore and we don't need God anymore because so we've got we don't science. want him to exist. Yeah. And so the people who did want God to exist were like, wait, we really need an exam- an argument that will prove that God exists. And they tried to do it through observation. And I guess we'll find out how successful they were. Yeah, because, of course, the most obvious thing to say is, well, we know um, sort of Genesis 1, 16, 17, we know uh, God created the earth in seven days. Yeah. Well, or some sort of variant on that. Some yeah. sort of God, according to for Christian... Um, so the base of Christianity, God created the world yeah. somehow in the Bible, seven days, people take it metaphorically. Point is, that happened. And so people thought, well, if the world, the universe, is God's creation, yeah. surely we must be able to trace God's handiwork mm. through that and see it sort of interwoven in everything around us. Yeah, the example the textbook uses is, is an, of an artist and the artist's artwork and saying... You'd think that um, you'd be able to tell something about the artist based on their artwork. Say they've done a book, for example. You probably can tell a bit about the artist and their life experience about through what they've written about. Um, well, no, we can talk about this, can't we? We can look at perhaps more uh, avant-garde artists, someone like Damien Hirst, whether yeah. he's a particularly good artist or not, it's beside the question. We can look at him and say, well, do we learn anything from when he cuts a cow in half and sticks it in resin, or is it just... Ugh. Um, is it just cutting a cow? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and then just preserving it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, can we learn anything from Damien Hirst about that? You He's could, got a weird fascination with the insides of animals. You maybe? Could surely, inf- surely, yeah, you can have some inferences come from that. Yeah, such a for sure. Um, and it, I mean, at the very least, you can understand what maybe languages they speak or, or what mm. cultures they're influenced by mm. by seeing what style of art they produce. I think generally that's a pretty safe option. Um, but anyway, I think one one other thing to note before we sort of get, get into this discussion is that proving God's existence through observation isn't like proving the existence of a physical object through observation because God is external to the universe and I, I'd say beyond our comprehension as well. So that makes it quite hard to, to go about this in the sort of, I suppose, normal way of proving something exists by observation. Because, of course, the normal way to prove something exists by observation is to say, I've observed it. Yeah, so I can prove Arthur exists-ish through, I observing mean... Him. Well, I, I, I observing him. I observing, yeah. prove that this floor exists by standing on it. Yeah. And yet, since God is not em- empirically observable, mm. it's rather difficult to yeah. do the same thing. And so you've got... You've got to say, can we trace him through the works? Yeah. Don't you? And also, I, I, I understand what Arthur kind of is like, I think. I mean, he may just have some sort of 
weird alter ego that he puts on whenever he's near me. But I don't think he does. I'm pretty sure I understand reasonably well what Arthur's like. And so that means I kind of know what I'm looking for. Whereas with God, it, I don't think we'd exactly know what to look for. You know, we're told some things about God in the Bible or whatever, sort of choose your holy book if you want to talk about Allah or, um, what's it, Mirakishnu or something like that? I'd probably butchered that. Um, anyway. The Hindu you get, gods. Yeah, you get yeah, told a bit about them, but you don't know everything about them. So it's quite hard to, to, to even know where to look to start with. So this is, again, why people sort of look at it. What are the, what are the evidences in this physical world? Let's look at the artwork rather than the art, like looking for the artwork rather than the artist, I guess you could say. Um, of course, there are so many predicates you can use to define certain things, like an apple. It's really easy to observe an apple because we have so many qualifiers for what makes an apple, mm. the sort of the shape, the texture, the taste, all these things you can use to say, does this fit into the category of an apple based on all these um, observations we have of apples? And yet we don't have any obs observations of God. I mean, if you take the uh, Christian God, then you say, okay, we do, we've got Jesus, mm. but he's only part of God, supposedly. So then when you take that, how do you um, extrapolate the entire world from one guy 2,300 years ago? It's quite difficult. And even harder if you, have, if you look at other religions where there is no um, direct appearances of God. Yeah. So... I mean, this is linked to um, spiritual experiences that we'll come on to mm. um, at some point, hopefully. Uh, we, should, <laughs> yeah, should we, we should talk about some arguments that people have had which allow... which they think, at least... Uh, does do this, does observe God. So the first one we can, of course, come to is Thomas Aquinas. Yep. He's a big guy. He came up with five of these because one's not enough, just in case. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's capitalism. Why, why have one when you can have five? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yes, you are saying The five arguments, I would just like to say the first four are not taken to be particularly strong arguments anymore. And they are so, they're riddled with criticisms. It's only really the fifth one, the teleological argument, which yeah. we'll go on to last, I think, as the, as the big finale of uh, Aquinas' um, arguments in this field, which still sticks around today with a lot of weight and has a lot of development and, um, and progress and thought that's been put into uh, building up this, argument, this teleological argument. Yeah, I mean, if you see, if you watch, like, Christian apologetics, mm -hmm. then this is something that they bring out a lot, the design argument. But anyway, let's, let's first talk about the, 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 four, the first four way, for, uh, first the first four ways. First four ways. Yeah, there we go. Um, I'll, in which he believes he can prove the yeah, I'll do the first three, because they're very similar. Then Arthur can take the fourth, and then we'll sort of discuss the fifth, which is teleological argument. So the first three are motion, causation, and contingency. And... By my understanding, they're, they're pretty similar. So the one from motion is, well, to get things moving, something needs to push them to start with. And so um, Aquinas says, well, look, you can see in the world, to say that we want to move an apple, right? I'm going to push the apple or I'm going to throw the apple. I'm going to cause that apple to move like through moving it. And and so he, he gets onto this idea of infinite regress. So what 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 pushed the apple? Okay, then what pushed the hand that pushed the apple? Then what pushed, I don't know, the arm that pushed the hand? And then you just go back and back and back. And he appeals to this idea that this infinite chain of um, 
of going of backward steps eventually has to end. He he doesn't believe that infinite regress is possible. Infinite regress is the idea that things just relying on something that happened before, which happened something which yeah. relies on something that happened before going back forever. Um, so he says, well, look, things are moving now. So there must have been something that didn't move to start with uh, to make those things move. And he says, well, that's God. Then going on to the um, causation again, it's like, well, there's and use the example of af of apples again what caused the apple to move well that's that was my hand pushing it okay what caused your hand to move well that was the muscles in my arm contracting what caused your muscles i, I don't know it, it just um it just uh you, you, you have to take it back and back and back and again he says well this is just another example of infinite regress which doesn't work same thing with contingency he says well look all of a lot of the stuff that well all the things that we see are contingent they don't have to exist you know, they, I could very well not exist and not much would change. And, and so he, he says, well, look, you can't just have an infinite regress and contingency. You can't have something that doesn't have to exist relying on another thing that has to exist. Eventually, you have to have a, a necessary being um, to start this chain off. So those three are pretty similar arguments, all relying on the idea of infinite regress being impossible. I think... I would like to develop that final, your, the third of the three you explained on the contingency necessity, because I think there are a lot of um, qualifiers we need to bring in here, because first of all, it is theoretically possible um, for something that is contingent, relying on something else, to rely on something else that relies on something else. Um, because as long as it's possible for it to exist, it could have existed. And so I think it is possible for something contingent, with for enough things that could exist, an infinite chain, it is still possible for that to be infinite. However, the possibility of that is so small. I don't know. I think that that sort of the part of the definition of being contingent is relying on something else for its own existence. I think Again, I didn't make that clear infinite, enough. The infinite regress. Yeah. So the idea is that for a contingent um, object, that object relies on something else mm -hmm. to have existed. Um, and Aquinas again appeals to infinite regress and says, well, you can't have something relying on something else to exist, which relies on something else to exist, which relies on something else to exist, going back and back and back. Because there must be something that caused the first thing to exist, something necessary yeah, for this exactly. change that's to begin. Idea. Anyway, you can think, take the fourth way, Arthur, unless yes. you have anything else to say. Well, I was just going to develop on this idea of infinite regresses and perhaps how sort of the flaws in that idea that there can't be any infinite egresses but I don't know. We could move on and to that. And then we'll get on to that. After, we'll do that yeah. afterwards, yeah. right? So this fourth, um, this fourth argument is the argument of degrees. Yeah. So it's the argument. It's this idea that if you take, um, say, the size of a dog. Say you look at something that's about half a meter long, and you say uh, that's about a normal size for a dog, right? How about half a meter? Normal size for a Labrador. But then you say, okay, uh, if it's a rat. If it was a rat that's half a metre long, that's huge. That's sort of plague-level... Um, <laughs> so Fallout 4, yeah. not good, right? <laughs> a, a rat half a metre long, you're running away. Uh, and this is the argument of degrees. It's the idea of, okay, well, we've got half a metre, but we need something to compare it to to give it meaning. So yeah. when you compare half a metre to a rat, that gives it a meaning because it gives it a runaway that's terrifying. But if you compare it to a dog, it's, oh, that's quite a sweet dog. Now, he... Aquinas then goes on to say, this is applicable to everything. This is applicable to good and bad. This is applicable to, to beautiful and ugly. This is applicable to anything. If you say something's good, 
you have to have a scale from mm. good to bad. And so you have to have something that can create the scale of good and bad. You have to even have a scale of existence to non-existence. And you have to have something that has to exist to, sh- to make this, these scales exist. You have, yeah. something, you have to have something that is the arbiter of yeah. all of these things. And the arbiter of all of these things, Aquinas argues, is God. C.S. Lewis has a, has a point on this. He says that um, you need a straight line to call a crooked line crooked. He's sort of inferring that to be able to call something bad, you need to have an example of good to compare it to. And I think this, this links to, again, the argument from degrees. Aquinas believes that there are objectively good and bad things in the world. And so he says, okay, well, we've got to have some sort of standard to, to compare these objectively good and bad things to, an objective standard, and that's what he says God is. Should we go on to criticisms of these four before we move on to something, uh, the fifth one, which can take us down a, a very, very long rabbit hole. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. It has done that for many theologians for many yeah, centuries. Yeah. Uh, well, tell you what, we can take the first three as one big criticism that yeah. undermines a lot of them. Um, which is the idea of an infinite regress could be possible. But even more um, potentially damning than that is just the idea that the arguments in themselves are self-defeating. Go on. Okay, right, I will. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Right. So the uh, idea that they're self-defeating is this idea that um, what he says, if we take the cause and effect argument, for example, is that everything must go back, right? And there must be this uncaused cause this unmovable object so this thing that is not in the just outside the chain of cause and effect to begin it if you want the person that flicks the first domino in the chain now aquinas doesn't qualify that there can't be mu- many of these things in fact it's it's totally possible that there are multiple things outside this chain of cause and effect and in the same way that there's a domino run on the floor but there's maybe 20 30 people walking around it it is, there's no stipulation that it has to be one thing. And so then you say, okay, so this chain of cause and effect, by Aquinas' own argument, must have something outside the argument, must have something that isn't inside the chain of cause and effect. And then you say, okay, then there can be multiple things outside the chain of cause and effect. Hmm. So there's no reason to suspect anything's inside the cause of chain and effect. And so by it, it's self-defeating because the chain of cause and effect is no longer a necessary thing because things exist outside of cause and effect. Yeah, exactly. And so there's no need for cause and effect. Because as soon as... Because as soon as you say you're outside a chain of cause and effect... Well, how many things are outside of this chain? And then why do you need the chain in the first place? Yeah, because if there's the many, many things that are outside of the... if, If there's even more than one thing that's... Sorry, I need to be clearer. If there's the possibility that more than one thing exists outside of the chain of cause and effect then why isn't everything, for example, outside the chain of cause yes, and effect? Yes, and Aquinas doesn't qualify this, and so the arguments mm. are defeated. And that's the same for the argument of degrees, the arg- well, the argument of contingency, and the idea of motion. Yeah. The idea of many things can be outside yeah. any of these. I think also, um, I, I can't remember which philosopher brings this up, but he talks about an appeal to the imagination. He says that the idea that in, the infinite regress is, is impossible is, is based on the, the, the fact that we can't imagine it. We, ca- we can't sort of imagine an infinite chain of regress it just doesn't compute in our minds we can't deal just, with infinity exactly just because we can't imagine infinity doesn't mean that it doesn't exist you know um mathematically you know infinity is a concept that we mathematicians work with um and we can't uh, sort of work, um, imagine that but we still use it and so 
I suppose this is a similar similar point. Just because we can't imagine infinite regress doesn't, in any stretch of the imagination, no pun intended, um, mean that it's impossible. Right. Um, yeah, and then... Um, so the infinite regress is totally could be possible. And you, of course, the biggest argument against that, of course, is the Big Bang and to say that well, science leaves us to believe, at this point at least, that there was a start to everything. Yeah. Which yeah. is why some of these views are research, like the first cause argument is resurfacing now because we're looking more into this. But then it's totally undermined again by the idea of quantum and the idea yeah. that things can happen seemingly uh, randomly and that there's no logical chain to anything and things act differently under observation and not under observation. Yeah. And that, of course, again, totally undermines this Newtonian idea of cause and effect. Then on to the argument for, uh, sorry, the fourth way, which is, uh, the argument from degrees, no, no fourth. We haven't done the degrees. I think it, it all relies on Aquinas's belief that there is objective moral right and wrong. And I'd say a lot of people nowadays wouldn't claim that. They'd say, well, in my opinion, it's wrong, or based on our culture, it's wrong, or, or based on the fact that we, we, we want human flourishing, it, it doesn't help human flourishing, and so therefore it's wrong. But they wouldn't say, based. in all cases, in all times, universally, this is wrong. Um, because things change. It's like, they might say, well, back in... Oh, yeah, sorry. What did you got to say after? I've got a good example for this, which we can give. I was about to give an example. But yeah, oh, you, no, you, no, you, no, it's fine. I was going to give um, the examples used by Joseph Fletcher in Situation Ethics, some of those examples. Yeah, go on. I was going to give some of those examples, because I think they're quite good to show how object morals may not be objective, and even and good and bad might not be objective. It's just one of those... One, a good one... From that is this idea of the adulterous woman who, to save her family, um, needs to uh, yeah, get with a German guard because she's in this concentration camp and a Jew. And if she does this, uh, the guard knows a way to let her family and herself escape. So then you say, what's the better option, letting her family die in a concentration camp or breaking one of the Ten Commandments, the, the, mm. um, that she not commit adultery. What's the, what's the good thing to do in that situation? And you go, okay, well, in every other situation, perhaps be- breaking that commandment's bad. But maybe it's not bad in this situation. Mm. Mm. So then it can't be always bad, and it must be objective. Yeah. It must not be objective, sorry. I think another good example is cannibalism, say. You know, in most cultures, cannibalism is frowned upon, I think. But, I, you know, there are some cultures, especially in the past, that have seeing it as just a normal thing, you know. Yes, we eat people, just like we eat, I don't know, sheep and pigs. And so in those cu- um, cultures, cannibalism is a cultural norm, whereas in our culture it's heavily frowned upon. So there's are two sort of diametrically opposed um, ideas that are both viewed as, like, morally right. In So one's, that cannibalism is morally wrong in one culture, namely ours, and, and morally right in another, and it's just suggests some sort of subjectivity and morality just based on your culture rather than an objective standard. Of course, I don't think that is quite, personally, I think that's quite, a pers- quite as a persuasive argument because you can say, well, perhaps that other culture isn't thinking about degrees of morality and it's just doing what it does. So I think perhaps the better example for cannibalism is there's a movie or a, there's a real event in a documentary that happened called The Society of Snow, the movie, and the real event is this plane crash in the 1970s, this horrible, horrible thing over the Alps where this rugby team was stranded and to survive, in order to survive, they were forced to eat the members of the crew and the plane and the passengers that died. Mm. 
So they were forced to eat them to keep themselves alive so they could survive. And then you go, okay, so either let people starve to death or cannibalism. Hmm. Another yeah. example of relative morality. Yeah. It's really hard to hard to wrap your head around from an objective standpoint. Yeah. So we had all these really, really good practical normative mm. examples of where Aquinas just doesn't cut the bill. This yeah. argument for degrees just doesn't cut the bill. I think it shows his sort of um the influence of his own culture and, and his zeitgeist of existing in a country that is literally a hundred percent Catholic. And so he's surrounded by people who only think right and wrong is that so he's surrounded by people who have the same um, moral views as him and so I, I it seems almost reasonable to assume that well everyone i've known in my entire life has pretty much the same the same moral um sort of system mm-hmm. because they're all catholics um and so just extrapolating from that well therefore everyone has the same moral system so it would seem like morality is objective when in reality maybe if he sort of under known about a few other cultures then he would have realized that actually wait no this is not an objective thing there's um plenty of examples of where christian morality that he's experiencing where he lives in italy um and then i think he went to france anyway yes that's, that's, um, <laughs> they're all catholic countries is the point yeah exactly and i don't think he even knew china existed yeah <laughs> so i think yeah. it's like uh he was quite a secluded man in terms of the cultures that he uh he involved himself with. I don't think we can really blame him considering... You can't, no. Because it was his time. Exactly. There's nothing you could do about his time. But it is telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't criticise him. I mean, we'd be probably... We'd be in trouble of cultural... What's uh, it? Chronological chronological snobbery, snobbery, as C.S. Lewis would say. If we did. Um, And then finally, the final... Fifth way. This is is what we're going to get on to now. I think before we criticise it, we may as well discuss William Paley's examples well William Paley's comes after Aquinas so should we not develop Aquinas and then alright fine sure let's go if we we can do it chronologically yeah fine I mean we don't have to do it chronologically I mean we're I was going to take I was going to discuss them all and then just criticise them as a whole I mean we could but we could also talk about the development okay yeah sure feel free Uh, but it's up to you no no I took the last lead on something so you can take the lead on this one Um, sure well Let's, let's just go on to William Paley, because I feel like we've discussed Aquinas a lot, and we'll probably cover the criticisms of um, the teleological argument at the end of this episode. Um, so, Paley sort of develops uh, this... Um, he, he develops this design argument, looking at um, the universe and saying, well, hey, it seems like there's a purpose in a lot of the things here. Um, he, he uses the example of a watch... Um, you're, you're going on a walk in a forest and you come across this watch and you're like, well, this can't have been here just sort of naturally occurring. This watch is, it's different. It's made of these intricate parts and and it's got, you know, it tells the time and all these things that you just don't see in the in the nature natural world around it. And so William Paley says that, well, look, obviously this watch has been designed and has been made. And he says, well, that watch is like, our universe, our planet, um, he, it's called an argument from, an, uh, from analogy. So he uses the analogy of this watch in the forest and says, well, look, obviously this watch has been, um, has been uh, designed and made. And so likewise, the watch is similar enough to our world to say, well, look at the complexity, purpose in our world and the universe. Surely... The poipus. Like, the poipus, exactly, Arthur, the poipus... Um, that surely that infers. I go nowhere without a poipus. When someone asks me, "What are you doing, and where are you going?" I say, "Uh, 
They always ask me, they always ask me, with what poipus? So, I always carry a poipus. Sometimes it dies, though, because it needs to be in water. Right. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. He says purpose in the... In the, in the if you think the watch um, that has his purpose had a designer or maker, well, you should think that the world that obviously has a purpose um, has a design and a maker. Uh, he uses other examples, too, like the human eye. He had a big thing with... Um, eyes and he said look at the m incredible complexity of the eye um, surely that infers that, that sorry that implies that there's that there was a designer and a maker because well the purpose of the eye is to see according to Paley and it seems to do quite a good job of it like the purpose of uh, the purpose of the watch is to tell the time um, and it seems to do a pretty good job of it usually and so just we would we would say well there's obviously a designer for the watch so why wouldn't we say that there's a designer for the eye and he says well the designer's god um so yeah that's that's sort of his, his main argument yeah. um uh, should we talk about his criticisms of I was, paley i was gonna say yeah uh i was gonna give a couple criticisms of paley because there is this big gaping flaw in his idea which is the fact that it's an argument by analogy whenever someone uses an argument by analogy, it's always really easy to say, well, how accurate is your analogy? Because you could use anything as an argument by analogy, and if you really stretch the analogy, you can almost make any point valid you want. So let me say, okay, is it actually true to say that finding a watch in a forest is similar to finding a universe made by God? So um, to say this watch is in the forest, this watch... It kind of works. It's very, it's complicated, but it's also simple in the fact that it just does, it does one job and it does it well and it does it right mm. and, and it ticks. Whereas there's so many things in this world that don't tick. There are so many things that don't work. It's like butterflies, an hour after they're born, their wings are too damp to fly. So they just have to sit there and be in many and get eaten straight after they um, come out the chrysalis. There are so many things in this world that are seemingly broken. And like the idea of evolution, the fact there's so much sort of death and selection, brutality to create uh, the world that we're in, which is kind of broken anyway. Paley's argument is that this is a perfect, what this is like a designed world, designed with purpose to get to this. And then you say, okay, well, if, if there was a God and he designed the world to get to the state it's in now, Surely a perfect God cannot design such an imperfect world. Yeah. If you want to have a God, then it's to make this, and it's that's, and that's an imperfect God. Yeah. And therefore not the God that he's talking about. And people give examples, for example, of blind spots in the eye. I mean, they use Paley's own example against him. <laughs> Human eyes have blind spots. It and car crashes. Yeah, that leads to car crashes and stuff like that. And, and it would seem like, well... That's a massive oversight if you're an... Um, yeah, uh, omnipotent <laughs> um, creator. I'm, I'm the all-knowing, all-powerful creator. I know that giving blind spots will cause car accidents because I know the, everything, so I know that cars will be invented and all that. Well, doesn't this lead us on to swim burn, but yeah. Yeah, um, we'll get to that eventually. Um, then another another criticism um, from uh, David Hume is uh, based off the Epicurean thesis, um, which is basically this idea that was came up, uh, which was sort of um, thought up by the Epicureans, which were these, um, I think they were Greek philosophers. Yeah, they were Greek philosophers. Yeah, and, and um, they had this idea that the universe was this um, thing that existed forever, 
but it was a finite space. So there was a finite amount of material with, that had existed forever that was just constantly moving around. So Hume said that, well, surely if there is uh, an infinite amount of time and a finite amount of space, then eventually... Um, you'll get everything. You'll get everything. And so we just experience part of that everything. The ex example that people have used is like uh, chimpanzees with typewriters. If you sit 100 chimpanzees, or even just one chimpanzee in a room with a typewriter for an infinite time, and just they just start typing, they're just bashing away at random keys, eventually they're going to write the Bible, the Quran, the complete works of Shakespeare. Um, what else are they going to write? They're going to write every single, cancer. every single, yeah, they're going to cure cancer. I mean, amazingly, cancer. they did it. This what? has been done. Yeah. If you go onto Google and you search the Library of Babel, it, it's a open source sort of website, and in it, is printed every and every every single letter every single letter in the alphabet in a random order stretching to infinity and if you typed in the entire works of shakespeare into the search bar and clicked enter you would find written in the library of babel the entire works of shakespeare you can find everything in the entire in in the library of babel babel it's like it, it's amazing and it proves mm. this point exactly an in infinite time with a limited space you do get everything and um, our current understanding of the universe goes on to develop this, this idea that the universe is, while it is expanding um, exponentially fast, and so finite space is uh, not really applicable, finite resources totally is. We have, this idea, we have the idea of conservation of energy, the laws of thermodynamics, mm, yeah. that energy cannot be created or destroyed. And so if energy can't be created or destroyed, but it's constantly transferred around and around and around and around, you're going to end up with what we have now eventually. If you yeah, keep, I mean, obviously that, that relies on having the universe fasting forever or and moving around forever. Which, of which course, is, don't know. We don't know that. That's, that's, a, that's the case. But this is certainly a, a, a potential criticism. Um, and then finally... Uh, and this is Hume's final criticism. He also makes the point of the aptness of analogy uh, criticism, but his his argument from effect to cause, and basically he says that, well, even if the universe is something, even if the universe is caused by something, you can't say that it's God. Uh, he gives the example of a set of scales. So, if you see that um, a set of scales, and you can only see one of the the pans of the scale. Um, up in the air with, say, a 10 kilogram weight on it, you could only say that on the other end of the scale there is something greater than a 10 kilogram weight. You can't say whether it's, uh, say, a metal weight. You can't say whether there's a car on the other end of the scale. Or, or how or, great or, the weight is. Exactly, or how great the weight is. It could be uh, 10 kilograms and, and, like, a fraction of a gram, or it could be a million tons. Um, and, and he says, well, even if the universe is caused, even if it is um, designed... That by no means gives uh, evidence for the existence of God. Um, it, so he says, well, you know, there could be multiple deities or there could be uh, just uh, sort of some sort of creative force that exists without it being this sort of personal, all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God that, for example, Christians believe in. Um, and I think this is, this is quite a good um, defence against um, Haley's argument because... You know, it allows for all of his sort of arguments to be true, but it just says, "Well, look, your your conclusion is really overreaching um, your 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 argument." Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really really good point. Of course, the criticism of that 
the idea of uh, yes to no is, of course, to then go on to say, well, what evidence do we have in this world that points us, what to point us to what sort of creator we have? Okay, we have humans made in the image of God, in the Imago Dei. Supposedly. Supposedly. But if, if we want to look for the thing that created the universe, and we accept Hume's criticism that the universe was created, and yet we don't know by what, because you can't extrapolate, yeah. you say, okay, well, what direction does the world point us in? Well, is, is there sort of like two billion Christians in the world? Are they all kind of pointing in this direction of there being an omnibenevolent God? Mm. Isn't more than half the world religious pointing to a deity? Perhaps then that is more likely if we are creating the Imago Dei to be able to, be able to find God. Mm, yeah, Perhaps I mean, then I that mean, points God, us towards that. God is certainly a potential explanation that would explain a lot of things. But I think this, this leads us quite neatly on to evolution because this evolution has been... Um, postulated as a great explanation for all of these, uh, a lot of Paley's points about, say, the, the apparent design in human beings, in fact, being explained away through natural selection. Mm. Um, and, and so, I mean, I assume if you're listening, you're familiar with the um, theory of evolution. Darwin's, yeah. Um, and it's sort of, well, pretty much one of the most widely accepted scientific theories out there. Um, and when this sort of emerged, it, it posed a lot of problems for... Um, for, for design arguments like Paley's, because even if you um if you suggest that oh um you know look at how perfectly designed the eye is for seeing, well no look at how perfectly evolved the eye is for seeing because the eye due to survival of the fittest was essentially forced to um become like what it is become now. like what it is now become really good at seeing. So it's not like oh because we've had some some amazing designer uh, making um all these brilliant parts that make up the human body. Instead, it's just, well, based on the sort of the mindless machine that is evolution, it's, it's just forced these really, the, these humans to exist that are really good at seeing and feeling and thinking because that's what is most successful for reproduction. Yes, Arthur. And yet, I feel that there's a really good counter which you can develop from Paley, which is just to say, instead of talking about certainties, let's talk about probabilities. Let's talk about what if... What, how probable is it that the conditions for evolution uh, were to occur? How probable is it that our world is, is in this Goldilocks zone? How many other opportunities have there been for this evolution to take place? How many mass extinction events have been avoided that could have destroyed this whole chain of evolution? How unlikely is it that this whole million, million year process has been able to lead to fruition? And then you say, okay... God designed the world to allow for evolution, to allow this, this chain mm. to create humanity. And it's even better than God just creating us outright because we're going to get better. We're going to lose our appendixes and our <laughs> ability to like bend our ears inwards because we don't need them anymore. We're going to develop new things. We're going to evolve. We're going to keep getting better and better and better and better and better and more adapted to the, the place we're in, to God's universe. And that's almost in itself an even more compelling argument for how evolution is really God's work. And yet, the flaw in that, of course, is how evil is evolution? Yeah. Which is Swinburne's... Um, no, it's not. No, no, Swinburne's for it. Who, who 
who, who, I think it's John Stuart Mill. Oh, it's John Stuart, John Stuart Mill. talks about the problem of evil. I don't John know if Stuart he talks, talks about, about evolution, but there are a lot of sort of contemporary atheist philosophers <laughs> who bring this up as, as an argument Richard against Richard Dawkins, for God. one. Yeah, Richard Dawkins. Um, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, um, but anyway. What's this? Brian Adams does? No, yeah. Uh, Douglas Adams, sorry. No, Douglas Adams. I, anyway. Douglas Brian Adams. Adams is quick. Yeah, Brian Adams, <laughs> no. Uh, Douglas Adams, yeah. the writer of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, talks about it. Yeah, and, and um, people, people sort of talk about this terribly wasteful process. You know, if you were going to create a universe and that you really sort of loved and, 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 and wanted to flourish, it, evolution seems like a really strange way to do it because it relies on the horrible suffering and death of million, over millions and millions and millions of years of animals and humans and you know if humans are made in the image of god and god loves humans it just seems like a very strange thing to put humans through um it's almost like he's giving us freedom uh, oh, i don't know i, I think he's giving least... us the freedom to to evolve and the freedom to exist in every possible sense of the meaning freedom yeah but I, is freedom always good you know we're free to suffer horribly and die no, and freedom's not good but did we or did we not according to the bible choose freedom over god Mm. We chose the the whole story of the Bible, the high, the Hylos the salvation history of God is that idea that we chose freedom to over freedom from. We chose freedom to experience everything over freedom from everything bad mm. by by being protected by God. Yeah, good and point. so that choice is then the ultimate argument for why evolution is God's creation. God doesn't want evolution, but to have total freedom to experience everything. You can't then limit humans in their very cage of their own being. You can't limit humans to... You can do your freedom to do anything, but you don't have freedom to change your own physical nature. No, you must have freedom to change your own physical nature. Mm. See what I mean? Yeah, I think also uh, so some other sort of brief criticism of, of evolution are, for example, it, it, the, we don't know how it started, so... The way evolution works... Lightning bolt in a puddle. Yeah, well, that, that's the theory. Lightning bolt in a puddle. Basically, a bolt of lightning struck a puddle of, um, of random chemicals and that caused the first sort of protein to emerge so that it could produce more protein. And the thing is, we've been trying to do this for a long time to, um, to, to replicate this lightning bolt in a puddle situation in, in labs and we haven't managed it. So, I mean, this is more of a God of the gaps argument, which is very flawed in general. But the idea that, well... Evolution doesn't seem to be able to start on its own. Proteins, we cannot, um, we cannot produce proteins without the existence of other proteins, and proteins is the basis of um, of, of life. Um, and so that that's that's one criticism. Another criticism is that, well, evolution is based off the idea that um, we we move from single cell single cell organisms into multicellular organisms, but that's never been observed. So this is a lot of sort of things that we haven't actually seen, uh, we haven't observed all these stages that are necessary for evolution to work. Um, and so th that's been used by uh, some people who would sort of critique the idea of purely naturalistic evolution and instead um, go for a more sort of God-guided evolution. Um, but then I also don't see, don't see the need to even criticise evolution with the idea of freedom too and the, mm. the, the salvation history of God and the Bible itself almost alluding to evolution in the idea of freedom. I still think that for, for a, um, an argument from uh, design or to work, it would, it would seem more fitting to have a very sort of streamlined process rather than the sort of bumbling d 
destructive process that evolution is. The humans um, not bumbling and destructive in their own nature? Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, anyway, so on to uh, some more sort of modern versions of the design argument. And we've already touched on this uh, in alluding to fine-tuning, but we'll expand on that. So, Arthur, do you want to talk about um, the anthropic principle? Um, the idea that the, that, the, um, that the Earth was created specifically for humans? Yes, I think that's a really, really, really weak argument, of course, mm. by F.I. Tennant, that we're so able to fit into the universe that we're in that it seems almost uh, unreasonable to say that we're just a random event in the universe because the universe, we fit so well in it, the world is so perfectly curated for us to be able to evolve and develop as a species. But if you flip that on its head, if you turn that around, you say, well, look at evolution. Is it not that we fit into the world, not the world fits into us? Yeah. Is it not that instead of God created the un- universe for us, that we were created in the universe and through the fires of f- and forging of evolution have ended up as we are and able to thrive in the universe as well as we can. Mm. Is that not more likely than an infinitely large, powerful thing of which all things are limited by, and there might even be other sentient species out within it, was created purely for us? Yeah. I think this also links to um, John Hicks. uh, No, not John Hicks. John Stuart Mill. Too many Johns, honestly. John Stuart Mill's criticism of... um, of these sorts of arguments in that he sort of appeals to the problem of evil, which is a very common, it's probably the best argument against the existence of God, I'd say, and saying, uh, I'll quote from him actually, "Um, not uh, not even the most distorted and contracted theory of good, which was ever framed by religious or philosophical fanaticism, can the, government, can the government of nature be made to resemble the work of a being at once good and omnipotent? So basically what he's saying is, look at the world, look at all the terrible tsunamis and earthquakes and, and uh, diseases and famines that occur in the world. It seems very strange for us to point to a, to a loving creator, and I, I suppose this listen, links to your free will thing, Arthur. Yeah, of course, um, the biggest argument. But then if, if we start going down this path, we're going to do next uh, next week's podcast in this podcast because what yeah. we're going to talk about eventually is the problem of evil. Isn't it? Yeah, and, so we don't want to talk this. So we don't. We're not going to touch this yet. All right, we will. Then um, finally, I think this is this is the final um, argument that we'll cover today, or at least in this episode. Swinburne's um, simplicity. Yeah. So this is this is quite an interesting theory. It was um, this this thing called Occam's razor, which was developed in the 13th century by Occam. a guy called Occam. <laughs> William William of Occam. Oh, okay. William of Occam. My mistake. He lived in Occam. He lived in Occam. I assume. Yeah. It wasn't made of Occam. Made, no, not made of. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, his idea Occam's. is that um, the simplest explanation is the most probable. So the idea that. Um, the, 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 the theory with the least unknowns is the most probably right. And that makes quite good and sense. You, and you can look at this in so many movies and you can say the simple plan works better than the complicated plan. Yeah. The guys robbing the bank that have to do all the high-tech stuff, all the sneaking in the back, all the going around with hundreds of guards to get to the bank vault. Distracting people. Distracting with, people with, know. like, throwing bottles. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> really... There are so many unknowns in and that. There's so many things that go wrong. The guys that come in blow... The guys that carpet bomb the bank with sort of tactical um, missiles, walk in, take the money and leave. There's no unknowns in that. 
Yeah, it's exactly. Just done. There's less things that can go There's wrong. There's less things that can go wrong in the immediacy of stealing the yeah. money. And I think if we apply this to the theory, the idea is that with Occam's razor, the, the better theory is the thing with the less thing, things that can go wrong with it or the less unknowns. Likewise, the best bank heist is going to be the ones with the least steps so that there's the least things that can go wrong. And so Richard Swinburne, who's um, uh, well, I guess a rather he's, ineffective philosopher. Well, let's not be too mean to him. He's, 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 he's a very, he's, he seems like a very nice man from his theories. Um, they sometimes seem a bit naive to me, but anyway, um, he he thinks he, he uses Occam's razor and says, "Well, you can explain our existence through all these scientific theories and and uh, evolution and all these very complicated processes, or you can just say God did it, and God did it is the simpler explanation. And so, according to Ro- Occam's razor, it's the better pro- um, explanation. It's the most probable one. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I don't really find that that convincing." Because, of uh, course, on the scale of very, very, very improbable to very, very, very improbable, you're talking about pennies here, the difference. Mm. You're not talking about the difference between a one-step plan and a 50,000-step plan. You're talking about the process of a one-in-a-billion chance to a one-in-a-billion chance. So, and a, a billion and one chance. So, yeah. I mean, like, the difference is so small... That it's not a particularly effective argument. And we don't, in fact, know how unlikely or impossible it is for God to exist. Mm. I also think, yeah, that, that links to, the, to another criticism of, we can say God did it, but we don't really understand what God is. So it, it's, it's, it's a sort of a strange explanation. We're just saying, we don't know, but we've got a name for the we don't know. So it seems like we're just put, putting this this sort of almost unknown being in the gap of all of, to, to in the, in the, and appealing to Occam's razor to justify it, saying there's this all-powerful being, and that's pretty much all we know about it, um, and that's that's the simplest explanation. So just go along with it, even though we don't really understand this this explanation. This is a huge. This is what Tim previously referred to as the God of the Gaps theory, and it's really uh, sort of a really lovely um, idea, but not particularly fulfilling philosophically. And you can use it in many processes. You can say. Well, science will eventually solve everything. Oh, I don't know how this works, but it's fine. Science will eventually solve it. Yeah. Oh, I don't know science how this works. Gaps. Oh, God made it, so it does have. It's doing something. I don't know what it is, but God did it, so it's doing something. It's just that you can fill anything in with a total. It's like a faith if, statement. Yeah. Science it, will solve it. God will solve it. If you you can fill in just about any mysterious gap with a, a mysterious thing mis- with, with, really with a total with a thing that you qualify as totally able to solve every problem and does everything yeah you can fit that into any problem or doing anything and it, it's, it's really, not helpful exactly and it's, it's very it's, it's kind of in a way hard to argue against because there's always going to well i i we i expect there'll always be gaps we'll mm-hmm. never understand everything so there'll always be some crevice of of scientific knowledge that we won't be able to explain and so you can just say well god did it um in fact, Look, God exists. God must exist because science can't explain this. But actually, no, we can't say that science can't explain that. We just say that science hasn't explained it yet. And you've got these two competing gaps theories. Yeah. And so they both sort of cancel out. Yeah. But the Bible itself does use God as the gaps as the argument for, for the problem of evil and many other things. Like in the book of Job, God of the God does everything. We can't understand everything, but God yeah. understands everything. So just trust God. It's the same thing as saying trust science or, I don't know, Trust anything. Trust trust the government. Trust the government. Yeah, some stuff like that. It's like yeah, but why? Um, that kind of thing. The the question is yeah, but and then it just doesn't work. It's not very it's not very filling philosophically. 
Though perhaps it's the only answer you can really get back to at the end of this. Anyway. Let's, um, let's wrap up with this quick key question. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, is it possible to claim that there is design in the world and therefore a designer when there are so many things we cannot explain or so many things that seem to work not very well? So about this key question, um, I don't... I, I think we've covered most of the, the yeah, facets of yeah, this, so I, I think agree. it's possible to move on now. Yeah. And if you remember back to when we were talking about that argument for cause and effect, um, one of Aquinas' first arguments, there must be an unmoved mover, going back to that, that is, in, in essence, sort of the very basis and the starting point of the cosmological argument, um, and the cosmological argument for God, which is what we're going to develop now, and I we're going to develop it... Yeah, all uh, three of the first all three, three yeah, ways yeah, all three are of these cosmological, cosmological arguments. What is it? It's cause, it's motion. It's cause, it's motion, and it's degrees. Uh, no, it's, it's um, well, not degrees, contingency. Not about contingency. But yeah. I think what we're going to talk about now is we're going to talk about Leibniz, uh, who is this... Um, I've got German Wilhelm Leibniz, yes. Born in 1646, died 1716. And he came up with this idea that That's God... Voltaire. Is it? No, no, it's no, not. No, 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 no it's not. Mistake. Le Leibniz was born 1646 to 1716. Honestly, he is. Uh, and the Leibniz comes up with this like, cosmological idea that this explanation that God is not just an explanation for the origins of the world, but why the world is now what the world is to come and essentially everything. Yeah. And he argues that the entire universe from time, from start to finish throughout all time is essentially a harmonious whole, which is essentially good. And God has created this world for a particular reason. And the really important thing is that it is the best of all possible worlds, which is this thing that Leibniz goes on to develop. He goes on to say in his book, uh, Monodology, that as there is, in God's ideas, an infinite infinity of possible universes, yet only one can exist, there has to be sufficient reason for God's choice, a reason which makes him make one choice rather than a different one. And so if we are for a second to believe that this is the only universe... Um, we have to say, well, why did God choose the universe to be this universe? Why is it this universe? And so it makes sense to God that this universe must be good because God chose this one over all the others. And the way we link this back to God existing, the elements of God existing, is when we look at, does anything exist for no reason? And contingent ideas of contingency. Because Leibniz argues that for every sentence that is true, there must be a reason, sufficient reason for that sentence to be true. For every event, there must be sufficient reason to explain the occurrence of the event. If something drops, the reason is gravity. Mm. If I say the world is round, the argument is someone sailed round it or the reflection on the moon. Um, and he also says for an entity that exists, there must be sufficient reason to explain this existence. So you can talk about um, a cat existing and you can say, okay, well, it's, it's got a mother cat and it's got... This uh, her hereditary of cats and cats and cats. It's got this genealogy that goes back and back and back, and that's why it exists. That's a sufficient reason. So Leibniz says there's nothing that exists without sufficient reason for it to exist. Why should the universe be any different from anything else we can observe in the universe? Mm. And so the universe must have sufficient reason to exist, and that sufficient reason, he reasons, must be someone choosing it to exist over something else, Yeah. i.e. God. I think it, it strikes me a bit like blind faith, if I'm honest with you. He's just saying, well, the universe is the way it is. God must... Because he's almost like he's taking God being real as his, as his starting point and mm. saying, well, 
God's real, and so the, this must be the best possible universe, because I believe in an all-loving God, so surely the all-loving God would have chosen to do the best universe, so therefore this universe must be the best universe. I don't see much argument for the existence of God there. Um, but, but then there is also the argument for the existence of God, if not perhaps the Judeo-Christian God, because you can say, well, this universe exists, and if we're talking about the idea of sufficient reason, and there must be sufficient yeah, reason I, to choose this God, part, yeah. some creator has chosen this universe for a specific set of reasons which are sufficient to him to make this universe exist. I mean, mean, it might be an evil creator who wants to create the most evil universe he can think of. Or it might be sort of a passive, passive, apathetic creator that just created it for no particular reason. I think... yet... Oh, no, sorry, go on. I think a big criticism of this is the idea that... a qualifier that Leibniz has is this must be the only universe, mm. and yet there is no reason Why to suggest universes, yeah. this is the only universe, and there's no such thing as a parallel universe or or multi universes, and that uh, there are not an infinity of other universes running parallel to this one, for want of a better word, that each uh, embody a slightly different version of reality from yeah. much greater and much worse than ours, and so in that sense. One of his sort of fundamental... One of the sense pre- the fundamental predicates of yeah, his, argument. his argument fall apart. And so once you destroy that tenant, that pillar, uh, there or is no it, longer... Just question it. Or, or once you say it's not certain, yeah. then, well, there is no sufficient reason for this because everything else exists. And so all other universes exist. And so there's no... Th- this one is no different from any of the others. And so there's no sufficient reason to explain this one's existence. And so... So that's like a mic drop moment against yeah. um, Leibniz, I'm afraid. I think uh, an almost universal criticism of um, of all the arguments that we've discussed today is a logical fallacy called the fallacy of composition, which I think I've butchered an explanation for before on this podcast. Um, <laughs> and and we take instead. Then? Sure, you, you you explain the fallacy of composition after. Let's see if I cannot butcher it this time. Yeah. So the fallacy of composition is, in the simplest terms, in the greatest praise. Um, <laughs> you got to say, preface it with one more long, overly I, I, I got the irony, thank you. Um, it was slightly intentional. The, the greatest, shortest, simplest Shut way that I could possibly sort of um, put forward this, it, look, looking semantically at the, mo- the most <laughs> evaluative language... No, sorry. Sorry, I'll stop. Yeah. The fallacy of composition. That... The parts have the parts having a purpose does not necessarily follow that the whole, the whole must have a purpose. Yeah. If we look at a human, for example, my eyes, the purpose of my eyes are to see, the purpose of my hands are to, to interact with the world, the purpose of my heart is to beat. And yet the purpose of me, that's unclear. Yeah, it doesn't. That, that, I, my purpose is not to see, my purpose is not to have a heartbeat. My purpose is not to to interact with the world around me through my hands. So the purpose of all my parts are different entirely to the purpose of my the whole of me. And that, let's bring that out to the universe. If you want to take over now, I give you a, now I've given you a stepping point so you don't butcher it entirely. Do you want to step Yeah, so the, the <laughs> idea that even if we see things that potentially do have purpose in the universe or an apparent purpose... Mm-hmm. Um, that does not not mean in any way that the that the universe itself has a purpose. The textbook sums it up like this: um, This fallacy is the assumption that because something is true of the parts, 
exactly the same must be true of the whole. And that, that sums up pretty well. Just the idea that because we see or may imagine that we see purpose in the universe does not mean that, um, that the universe itself has a purpose. And, and um, it could also bring up the fact that it could just be us having some sort of cosmic wish fulfillment. We want to think our lives have purpose, because let's be real, it's not very nice to just think, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm literally pointless, my entire existence mm -hmm. is of no value in the end. It's much nicer to think, there's a God up there who loves me. Uh, yes. Feuerbach talks about this with projection theory. He says, God is merely what you want him to be and not what he is. So you see God as you are, not as God is. Mm. In, in that sense that if I want God to be this great loving be being that's given me a purpose, that's what I, that's what I find when I and look for God. You look, and then you, that's then what you, you look, look for, for that, that's what you find. and then you find it. If you want God to be, I don't know, any other thing, you can look for it and you can find it. If you want God to be a giant snake, you can probably look for it and find an explanation that gives you at least some sort of semblance of rationality to believe that there's a giant snake that governs everything. Mm. And, but I think going back to this idea of the fallacy of composition, it looks again more at nature, saying, okay, well, evolution seems to give things purpose to lead to the next thing, and ants seem to have a purpose to work together to feed yeah. the big ant, and all these things seem to have the a purpose <laughs> on a micro scale, but <laughs> the green ants, all these things seem to work together on a micro scale, but on a macro scale, on, on a universal cosmological scale, there's no reason that they should expand out that far. Mm. Yeah, I think that is pretty pretty well um pretty well summed up the this this chapter. I'm just having a look at this. this chapter. Not a point not necessarily pointless. I mean, we may well be looking for meaning in the meaningless world and and part of that process is doing philosophy. Um <laughs> but again, the most pointless thing. Ah, is it pointless? It's quite fun. Um, yes, it's fun. Sorry, it yes, it it's quite hedonistically useful but not yeah. fun. <laughs> Yeah, we're um we what are we um bent yeah it is swine bent, theory isn't it? yeah swine theory we just we're just some people yeah anyway and indulging ourselves with philosophy yeah anyway carry on let's do a question shall we we always do a question yeah it's best um, to do a question uh, let's have a look through these uh I think uh, this this could be you interesting think you no I will say okay. I will say this is, this seems like an interesting because I think one. a lot of things the universe is just there. It neither has nor needs an explanation. Discuss. So this is the one. The universe is just there. Mm -hmm. It neither has nor needs an explanation. Mm. So the universe just exists. Deal with it. You don't need to explain it. Mm. Um, do you? I mean, I, I, I disagree with that. Um, I quite like that. Okay. Well, fine. You 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 say why and I'll why you like it and I'll say why I don't like it. Well, I think. Often it's quite dangerous to try and ascribe meaning to things we don't understand. And often it can have a very large negative reaction. And you can look at race, for example, as a big understanding of this and racism and saying we're yeah. ascribing this meaning of value to a certain race over another race. And look at the disastrous and evil consequences that has, that has had. And I suppose that that is, I think, an apt analogy to saying, OK, we're ascribing meaning to something we don't understand. We're trying to ascribe a value or a creator to the universe, which is unbelievably, unimaginably beyond our comprehension. And yet we're still trying to explain it. And I think that's, again, quite dangerous because you can get it so wrong and you can twist people's perceptions and have a real, really damaging real world effect 
by making up things and then saying they must be true. I mean, look at the damage religion has caused throughout the world, the damage um, Catholicism has caused in the West, uh, Islam in, in the Middle East, all these damaging things. They've come from this... They've come from this idea that humans have said, the universe must have a meaning, let me find the meaning of it. Okay, we've got this meaning, now let me kill you, because I've got a better meaning. It's, it's so dangerous, and it's almost safer, and it's almost better for people, in terms of keeping them alive, to say, the universe doesn't have a meaning. Or if it does, it's so far beyond our comprehension, that coming up with ideas like God, and... and purpose and watchmate and paley's watchmake all these things they're sort of like throwing coin pebbles into the abyss they're just nothing and yet they have such a disastrous effect on real human lives and livelihoods that it's it's dangerous and damaging to even consider this question and you're much better off completely ignoring it i think your cherry picking example is very very hard here arthur because i think there are so many examples where um, sort of assigning a meaning um, to something is, is, has been a very good thing. For example, ascribing a meaning to human life in general, you know, it, it's what gives human life value is, is the idea that human lives are meaningful. And that sort of belief, and to use your example of, of, of religion, of Catholicism, well, maybe not Catholicism, but, well, yeah, I, I won't exclude Catholicism. Christianity as a whole in the West has been a really fundamental part of um, bringing around ideas like human rights, like the fact that we have universal rights. So this ascription of meaning and searching for an explanation has led to something that I think the vast majority of people would agree is a really positive consequence. So while yes, there are examples of where religion has done some awful things and a, a, a misascription of, of uh, meaning has been, has been bad, I do think that there are other examples of where it's been quite good. I also think that um, I want to use the example of um, somebody who's just uh, who, who's going to be executed, right? Executed by firing squad. So um, they, they've deserted the army, let's say, during a time of war, and the army doesn't want that. So they're like, well, it's going to, we're going to shoot them. So they get 12 expert marksmen, right? They've all got their rifles trained on this, this um, deserter. And, you know, the, 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 the officer in charge gives the order to fire. So the 12 men, they all fire and they all miss. And so the man's there, alive. He's just survived being shot at by 12 expert marksmen. Mm. None of them hit him. And he, he, I don't think it would be very strange for him to say, well, it's just how it is, isn't it? It just is. I'm not going to search for an explanation. Surely that marks, that, that, um, that deserter would say, surely there's got to be some kind of explanation for this and search for that explanation rather than just saying, just how it is, isn't it? You know, it just seems like a strange reaction to this, this quite bizarre if not awesome universe no not this not this moment uh, this bizarre and awesome universe maybe i'm being too generous to the universe but certainly strange universe that we exist in it, i don't know it seems strange not to pursue an explanation yes sorry Arthur, come on but that let's go back to the idea of the firing squad because i think it's a really it's the best it's the best option that we have it's that idea that humans are standing here looking down the barrel of 12 guns, uh, which is the complexity and the dangers of the universe. And mm. I mean, even space, going into space kills us instantly. It drags our insides out and freezes yeah, us yeah. to death. Basically, asking these questions is it's dangerous and, and it leads to so much um, like dread and death in the world that um, the universe does not 
to need this explanation. The universe is going to go on, whether we give it, whether we ascribe meaning to it or not. The universe clearly existed before we were around and will continue to exist after we were around. Us messing with it is, it's not going to affect the universe. All it's going to affect is our lives. And clearly, historically, it's going to have a negative impact on our lives. Yeah, I mean, I'm just gonna, I just disagree with you. I think you're cherry-picking examples. Um, That's deja vu. I, I have a sense of deja vu. Yeah, right? I know. I, I'm just going to say the same thing, because I think you are. Um, and maybe maybe it's just a personal thing. I think that if I'd just been missed by 12 expert marksmen, I'd be looking for somebody to thank, or at least an explanation for what on earth happened. Because I should be dead, but I'm not. And, you know, that's quite a big deal. Uh, yeah, so that, that's just that's the way I look at it. Um, I think maybe you could potentially say that it doesn't need an explanation, but it, it would be nice to give it an explanation. Um, I think, you know, from the point of view of human existence, I certainly like having a meaning and an explanation for why I exist. And yes, maybe it is just wish fulfillment. My, my, yeah, will, will my opponent kindly give way? Yeah, I will. I don't need to say much more. I mean, he, he my opponent, Tim, quite aptly put the point I was going to make about wish fulfillment uh, to myself because he keeps saying, perhaps it's just me. I would quite like to do this. I would quite like to do that. But I'm saying, if you take out, I mean, I would probably also ask these questions, but I'm saying the people that ask these questions, the the people that say, well, what if I push it? The people like uh, Alexander the Great, the people like, the people that built the Roman Empire, the people that, um, the pe- like, people who pushed the boundaries of meaning, all these philosophers, think about the dangerous theories that they've come up with that people have twisted i mean look at nietzsche and ubermensch and the fact that nazis used that but i would say philosophers have not come up with that philosophers thinking about the the meaning of the universe have have not come up with anything particularly positive for the world but they have given a lot of a lot of dangerous men ways to twist what they say to create damaging things and if we go back to the question i want to go back specifically to the question here to say, uh, the universe is just there. It na- neither needs, it neither has nor needs an explanation. I I think we have to say that it doesn't need an explanation. I mean, Tim, to quote Tim himself, perhaps it doesn't need an explanation. Yeah. So I think now what we have to do is focus on um, has an explanation. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, yeah. <laughs> asserting that the universe does not have an explanation mm-hmm. seems like a contradiction in terms because mm. you know the universe exists. And something must have caused it to exist, even if it's been, there, even if it has been there for forever. Surely it's still that's that's the explanation there. Mm. The universe exists; it's been there forever. So the, the the needs is the bit that we can disagree on. I think mm-hmm. that has an explanation. Is it's, I think it's a sort of foregone conclusion. Of course, the universe has an explanation. It may be very well, potentially not a theistic one, but it still is an explanation because well, it's here, isn't it? And yeah, I don't know. No, I, I, I think that's, I think that's impossible. I quite find it almost impossible to take the side that, uh, the the universe has no explanation. no explanation because even within within the semantics of saying, oh no, it's just a random coincidence of atoms expanding into atoms, and it was a totally freak event of the Big Bang that there was something from nothing. That's your explanation. That's the explanation. Yeah. Any words you use to describe a phenomenon, you can then say yeah. that's the explanation, and yet you could say. Perhaps the universe is beyond language to describe, and yet that's just an issue with language. That's not an issue. And with, yet, and yet, <laughs> and yet that that's an yeah. issue. That's the universe still exists. Yeah. So I think this question 
has two opposing conclusions. Yeah. That the universe has an explanation, and yet we need not find it. Yeah. Um, oh, that's that's a pretty good conclusion that we've got to. Um, I, I mean, I disagree with your second part, but anyway, I don't think we're going we're gonna <laughs> to... The universe has an explanation. No, I disagree that, that it doesn't need... I mean, yeah, no, I don't think it needs an explanation, but I Thank don't you. think... Thank you, that's uh, end of discussion. <laughs> I don't think we should, we should be scared of pursuing an explanation. Um, well, yeah. That, that's it. The next episode, we're going to do the existence of God based on reason. And we're going to go through everything else, but we're going to get further away from practical things <laughs> and, and yeah. go even more highfalutin and, and yes. just go into thinking and prosologian and Anselm and all these various books and things. Um, and but, yeah, maybe yeah. sort of centering around the ontological argument, which is an interesting argument. But very difficult. And so we will attempt to explain it as best as we possibly can. Yeah. Um, um, it's quite it would be hard. helpful for us as well. Yes, it's quite, it's quite a hard thing to get one's head around. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, um, thank you so much for listening yeah, if you got to the end. Uh, um, and even if you didn't, thank you so much for really turning it on. Yeah. Uh, we're trying our best with these, and uh, our next one will be very, very soon, and we have so much fun with them, and we thank yeah. you so much for engaging with them. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Bye.